Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. And welcome back to the Lotus Underground. This is MC Owens, and this is going to be part seven of my series on the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, today I will be discussing Sati, otherwise known as mindfulness. Um, I'm going to be reading uh, from a few sutras and discussing the overall practice of mindfulness, what would otherwise be known as meditation. Uh, but actually, let's begin with a definition of the term sati. Again, it's usually translated as mindfulness, perhaps focus. I've even seen concentration, but often the word concentration is reserved for samadhi, the eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path. Um, and so let's just begin by discussing the actual meaning of the word. So sati is a Pali word, and it corresponds to the Sanskrit term smrti. Both terms, sati or smrti, it's the same word, just a different pronunciation. But it's interesting to keep in mind that the term sati originally referred to basically memory, uh, remembering something, what also might be called recalling or bringing to mind. And this term has a very old, um, it's very old usage in India, in the Sanskrit language as well, particularly among the Vedic tradition, the tradition of uh, using those epic poems called the Vedas. And the idea was, is that if one had, say, memorized a verse or memorized a section of the Vedas, there was a process of remembering, of, of recalling those words, of bringing them to mind. And that act or that process of bringing something to mind is called smrti, remembrance. And again, in Pali, it's called sati. But as usual, the Buddhists and the Buddha uses these terms a little bit differently. But I think it's helpful to keep in mind that meaning of sati as, as memory, as, as remembering something. But in the Buddhist tradition, the term sati refers something more closer to what in English we call mindfulness. Uh, I, I like the term mindfulness f basically for a particular reason. If I really wanted to just quickly, succinctly, very clearly define sati or smrti within the Buddhist context, I would suggest that the contrast is one between what we would call mindfulness, sati, and then basically mindlessness, being without mind. But in English, when we say mindlessness, we are referring to a kind of being distracted, distractible, but also sort of confused. Um, you know, there's a lot of connotations to the term being mindless. But I actually think it's helpful to like consider that feeling or consider the idea of being mindless. And then the opposite of that is this idea of being mindful, being focused, being clear. And 
in general, the way that you can think about this, again, is in terms of being distracted versus being focused and sort of looking at the mind. And there's a way in which maybe the mind is distracted in the sense that it's divided between different things, shifting from this idea to that idea to the next idea. Or it could be a kind of an overall lack of ability to focus. So not just that ideas keep popping up, but actually external uh, phenomena, external stimuli begin to distract one. And so the degree to which one is not focused and distractible and distracted, you could imagine that as a mindless state where mind is actually sort of almost quantitative, right? And what I mean by that is, is that you actually sort of can think of having a lot of mind and a lot of mind would be very focused, very concentrated, very clear, not distracted. And in particular, very, very focused, but this is not a hard straining focus. It is just a very anchored type of focus. And that is the general idea of sati or shmrti in Buddhism, to be mindful, to be focused and aware versus being distracted. Again, being mindless in that way, an inability to focus. So that's like a general definition of sati. And while it is, is usually, you know, just called meditation, of course, in English, the word meditation has a lot of different connotations, has a lot of different practices. And so let's stick with mindfulness versus the more general term of meditation. And what I want to do is, is I want to return to something I've been doing in this series, which is I've been presenting the Noble Eightfold Path as a, as a progress, which is to say a kind of cumulative practice meaning that there's a way to look at the Noble Eightfold Path as a actual step-by-step -step process, and that by beginning with the first step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which is right view, the correct drishti, samyak drishti, the idea is, as I presented it, is that if one's view of this world, right, this kind of understanding of what's going on here, what's important, what's not important, that kind of way of looking at the world or that worldview, that drishti, that's the first step on the path. And the idea, again, as I've been teaching it, is that if you have the wrong view, right? Because remember, this Noble Eightfold Path is in terms of the right view. Today, we're talking about the right type of mindfulness. And so the idea is, is that there's a wrong way to do each of these steps. And so if the first step is sort of the wrong view, then the intention that one sets in the second step, it'll be a slightly different intention based upon the different view. And now we're off on a very different path, not the Noble Eightfold Path, but a different path that begins with a different view basically in the sense of wrong view. And so I've been teaching this again, cumulative, which means that all of the six prior steps on the path, establishing the right view, setting the right intention, 
making right speech, performing right action, having the right livelihood, and then making the right effort. Those six steps, the idea is, is that they are the right view and the right intention and right speech and right action and right livelihood and right effort. Then those are all conducive to bringing about a state of right mindfulness or correct mindfulness, a state of mindfulness that is conducive to the ending of suffering. Because let's not forget, that is what the Noble Eightfold Path is all about. It is an eightfold path to the cessation of dukkha, of suffering. And so if we're in, interested in ending suffering, part of that is establishing right mindfulness. And we need to, in a way, observe the prior six steps so that the way in which we establish right mindfulness, this right focus or right concentration, will be conducive to the ending of suffering. And so I just want to quickly return to an analogy or an example I, I gave in the last of this series. That was the, uh, the entry on right effort. I want to remind you that I kind of laid out an example of sort of two paths, um, uh, a Buddhist path in that sense, and then a non-Buddhist path in that way. And I set these up to sort of um, establish what I would mean by, say, right view versus wrong view. And the basic scenario that I set up last uh, episode was the idea of someone whose worldview is one where the acquisition of wealth and property makes one safe and happy. That general worldview, uh, that's, you know, again, it's a very popular worldview that that's sort of what this being alive and being in the world is all about. It's the view of this world. And the view, again, could be that it's about the acquisition of wealth and property in order to feel safe and happy. I contrasted that with a, a Buddhist household, with a Buddhist child who is instilled with a more Buddhist view, a Buddhist drishti. And that view of the world is actually that reliance upon, dependence upon, things like wealth and property for a sense of happiness for a sense of security is well that's that's the that's the wrong way being dependent upon these things for that feeling of security or for that feeling of joy or happiness that's the wrong way and so the idea again from a buddhist point of view is is that no 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 being independent of things of this world will make you feel secure and will ultimately make you feel much more joyful. So there we have these sort of two competing worldviews, very actually quite exact opposite, acquisition of wealth and property, and in a sense, the relinquishment of wealth and property, not necessarily becoming a monastic, but not being dependent upon those things versus a worldview in which everything is riding on those things. And so I laid out these two scenarios in which those two people with those two worldviews, those two different drishtis, 
that all of a sudden, the next step in their life, which is the setting of an intention, those two intentions will be very, very different. The Buddhist, in a sense, will be making a vow to try to not grow dependent upon the things of this world for their security and for their happiness. Whereas the other person is going to set the intention of becoming very wealthy. And the idea of setting that intention, the intention of becoming a millionaire or a billionaire, the idea is, is that it, it makes total sense if that's your worldview. If you are really believing that wealth and property leads to security and happiness, then yeah, it would make a lot of sense to set the intention to make a lot of money. But if, again, if you have a different worldview, a different drishti, then the intentions that one sets will be very different. And last episode, I kind of went through all the various steps of how these two different people would approach, say, speech. The person trying to make a lot of money may not have any problems lying, being deceitful, or maybe even being harsh with their speech, provided it gets them the necessary wealth and property in that sense. Whereas the Buddhist is going to be very careful about the way they use their language. Likewise, with action, action of the body to either pursue wealth or get involved in activities like meditation that remove oneself from that uh, acquisitional mindset. Livelihood, of course, was probably one of the most salient ways in which these two people would have a very different life. Livelihood for our wealth seeker would very much be about a, a livelihood that amassed the most amount of wealth, whereas livelihood for someone else, for the Buddhist, would be very, very different. And then that finally led us to the idea of right effort. And again, the idea is, is that the further we get down the path of these two uh, people, the, the further they're going to be from each other. And so last time we talked about the idea of right effort. And that within a Buddhist context, and for our Buddhist, right effort is this idea of trying to increase or induce or bring about wholesome dharmas, wholesome action, and trying to diminish or kind of even eradicate unwholesome action or unwholesome dharmas. And so the right effort for a Buddhist is, you know, it's a much more sort of... Um, I would say ethical or moral in that way, that the effort is about really trying to be morally disciplined in that way. Contrast that with someone, again, with that very different worldview, that very different intention, all the way up to livelihood, their effort, the, their, even their idea of effort is going to be very different. And how I set it up last time was the idea was, is that if our wealth and property seeker is starting to feel anxious or nervous or something to that effect, their answer might be, well, I should work harder. I should work longer hours because I've already established that wealth and property will make me secure and happy. And so if I'm not happy and I'm not secure, then it must be because of my lack of money or what have you. So I will work harder. And you can kind of, again, see how that would make sense if that were your worldview. 
Whereas the Buddhist actually might come to the realization that the, the right effort is a meditation retreat in which they actually take time off work. They take time away from the world. And that would be, from their point of view, the, the right effort, the right thing to do in that sense. Okay, so those two quick reviews of bringing us up to the idea of, a, of the sixth step on the path, right effort for these two people. Let's now jump into the idea of right mindfulness. So now both of these people are Buddhist and are uh, wealth and property seeker. They may also then come to this realization that they need to focus. They need to uh, concentrate in that way. And what we're going to talk about for the rest of this episode is what is the right mindfulness or the right way to establish mindfulness, focus, concentration for a Buddhist. And when we're talking about that, let's just have in the back of our mind that there's a lot of different ways to go about this. And what I mean is, is that when we're thinking about meditation, mindfulness, focus, concentration, the idea is, is that there are a number of different ways to go about kind of um, developing that type of focus. And what I mean to say is, is that our wealth and property seeker will also inevitably come to a situation where they need to focus, they need to concentrate, and they may turn to stimulants. <laughs> they may turn to some substance or turn to something that will provide them with a sense of focus, a, a sense of concentration in order to get some work done. And what I guess what I'm suggesting is, is that if you were to take... Uh, a stimulant or to take a substance that did increase your focus. It did rain in your mind and give you hours of focused awareness so that say you could get work done. From a Buddhist point of view, that's going to be the wrong mindfulness or the wrong way of doing mindfulness. And it's for a, many, many reasons that it would be called or described as wrong. The primary reason that I can think of that sort of corresponds to what I've just said is that the problem with that is that that focus or that awareness is dependent upon that substance. And that's kind of the idea of Buddhism that way that if you're if your joy, if your happiness, if your sense of security, or in this case, even your mindfulness, if it's dependent upon something else, that's problematic. And it's problematic because if you don't have that substance, if you don't have your stuff, you can't focus. You can't concentrate because the only way you know how to do it is by kind of relying or depending upon something else in that way. And so, again, while that type of stimulated, focused awareness could be called mindfulness, from a Buddhist point of view, it might be considered the wrong type of mindfulness. There's a few other ways, not as drastic as stimulants, but there are many other ways 
to establish mindfulness. There are various trances or almost forms of hypnosis, right? And then that would be sort of, you know, a classic example in a way would be your hypnotist with their uh, dangling clock or their dangling watch and saying, you know, just stare at the watch and count to 10 backwards and all of these things. And there's a way in which that type of activity may bring about a sense of mindfulness, uh, letting go of uh, outside disturbances and being able to come into focus. But again, from a Buddhist point of view, that would perhaps be wrong mindfulness because it's dependent upon your hypnotist, hip, your, your hypnosis process. And if you don't have your hypnotist available, you can't get hypnotized and get into your mindful state. And there's a bunch of other kind of examples of what might be mindfulness, but the wrong kind of mindfulness. So in order to um, just come to a clearer understanding of what the Buddha, what the Buddha and what Buddhism means by right mindfulness, I'm going to begin by reading from that tiny little sutta that I've been reading from uh, every one of these series. This is the tiny little analysis of the Eightfold Path Sutra that's part of the Samyutta Nikaya, the uh, Connected Discourses of the Buddha. Um, and this is um, in the section on the Marga, section on the path. Um, and so from this, again, this is the same source I've been reading from uh, this whole series. And what bhikkhus? Is right mindfulness, the Buddha asks rhetorically. Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu dwells contemplating the body in the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. One dwells contemplating sensations, in sensations, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. One dwells contemplating mind in mind, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. One dwells contemplating dharma in dharma, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. This is called right mindfulness, samasati. Okay, so that's just the little section there. Um, again, I really enjoy this tiny little analysis of the Eightfold Path Sutra because it's sort of the the clearest, most succinct definitions of each of the steps on the Eightfold Path. Um, I'm going to be referring to another sutra, actually two more sutras in a moment that will expand these ideas, but I really think the, the essence of right mindfulness is really in what I just read. So the first thing, of course, that you may notice is that you may already be very familiar with what are called the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, and those are the four foundations that were just mentioned in what I just read. They are the body, sensations, the mind, and dharmas. 
And I want to go through each of those um, in detail to kind of establish kind of what they what they mean, what they refer to, and then how they're used in practice. And then I also want to go through some of the more key features of, of that tiny little sutra I just read. Um, so first of all, again, these are what are called the four foundations of mindfulness, the body sensations, mind and dharmas. And the first of those foundations is the body. And right away, what I want to say is, is that, you know, again, there are a lot of different techniques and methods for developing focused awareness, focused attention. And again, there's a, a variety of techniques. And you can imagine, you know, if you wanted to focus that, again, you could go into a trance state, but you could also do a type of meditation, but a type of meditation that, you know, would be, you know, what we would call like a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, like a, a visualization in that way, where it'd be sort of like, oh, okay, you want to meditate, you want to be mindful, okay, imagine a bright light, you know, and imagine that light swirling all around, you know, or any number of visualizations, or, you know, even kind of uh, different forms of, you know, not necessarily escapism, but a, also a visualization where it would be sort of like, you know, imagine you're in a cave and imagine inside, the, you know, and just kind of starting to create uh, a mental pictures in that sense. Those are all techniques that I've seen and I've heard. I even have even participated in different techniques. And again, there are a variety of ways to establish kind of focused awareness. The Buddha and Buddhism suggest that the right way to do this is actually to begin by developing a focused attention or awareness of the body, the embodied experience. And I think that this is very, very helpful because, well, for a variety of reasons. One, because we, in this sense, are not dependent upon anything external to us for doing this. The, the very focus of our attention is ourselves in that way. So that's good because, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And so the idea is that you can always use this as a technique. In fact, what's interesting about it is that even if you are in a dream state, if you were in a hallucinatory state, like kind of having a bad trip or something like that, this technique always works. Again, even if you're in a dream and, and per se don't have a body, the idea is if you were having a nightmare and you found yourself in a very anxious, very confused state, even in a dream, you can use bodily awareness as the beginning of your focus. And actually doing that may create a lucid dream experience where you realize you are in a dream and therefore you have no reason to be afraid of this nightmare. My point is, is that the technique of bringing your attention to the body, it's a very wise one in that way, because again, it's always there. So let's just start with the body very quickly in order to establish something uh, about the relationship of sati or mindfulness and using the body. So again, I want to remind you that the practice here, it's about attention. And what I mean by that is uninterrupted attention. So, you know, you can imagine 
and actually, let me let me go a little further. One of the main focuses of body awareness, an aspect of the body that is considered pretty much the, the go-to place for mindfulness, is the breathing. What's called anapana, this sort of uh, inhalation, exhalation movement, expansion and contraction of the body. There's a lot of different aspects of the body that you can focus your attention on, but sort of the number one place the Buddha recommends is the breath. And so the idea is, is that you would begin a quote meditation session by focusing on the breathing. And the idea here is, is that what we are going for is an uninterrupted focused attention on the breathing. In other words, as the Buddha says, or actually I'll read it in a second, but the prescription is to be aware that you're breathing in or aware that you're breathing out. You can also be aware if you're breathing in deeply, like if it's a very deep inhalation or a very shallow inhalation. You can also be aware if it's a very deep, long exhalation or just a very short, shallow exhalation. The point of this is just to be aware of these things. It's not actually to do any kind of pranayama. There's really no breath work going on here. It's actually more just about a much more passive attention to the breathing and being just aware of whether you're in the process of inhaling, in the process of exhaling. And you can also be aware if you happen to be clenching and holding your breath too. The point is, though, is that we are going for an uninterrupted attention of that breathing. And what I mean is, is that you may be aware that you're breathing in, you may be aware that you're breathing out and breathing in and breathing out. But invariably, eventually, the mind has a tendency to wander and start to think about other things or get distracted by external phenomena. And at a certain point, you come to realize I'm no longer paying attention to my breath. I haven't been paying attention to my breath for a few minutes now. That is not mindfulness. So that's being distracted. And so the prescription is to return to the breath, to return to an awareness of the body. And again, the, what we are going for is a focused, uninterrupted attention and attending to the body in that way. And the idea here is, is that when we begin this process, we may not be able to get through more than a few breaths before we notice that our mind has become distracted. But as we practice, and it's called practice for a reason, you get more, your mind becomes more focused and trained at being focused. And it's not an effort to stay aware of the breath. It's kind of almost a natural habit that you are developing to stay focused and aware of the body. And the idea is, is that we continue to increase that ability to stay focused, to not get distracted by external things and to not get distracted by internal things, by which I mean other thoughts that arise, other emotions, things like that. 
And so, again, no matter where you are, whatever the circumstances are, you can always use a bodily awareness, an awareness of being embodied as your initial starting point for establishing mindful awareness or sati. Okay, so that's the body. Again, breath or inhalation, exhalation is kind of the premier aspect of the body to focus on. The second foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha mentions as part of establishing right mindfulness, the second is what are called sensations, sometimes also translated as feelings. And these are, of course, vedana. Vedana sensations are sensations of the sensory organs. So the act of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. So remember, six sensory organs in the Buddhist psychological tradition. There's six sensory organs, each having its own sensory experience. But what Vedana are, again, are not just the sensory... Uh, reactions or the sensory stimuli, they are actually the responses to those reactions. Do we find this sense pleasing or do we find it not pleasing? Or is it neutral and we have no feeling about it one way or the other? So whether it's a, um, you, you take the visual field, you take light. The idea is, is that you may be sitting down to meditate and the light in the room may be too bright and your eyes are straining and that's displeasant and you might prefer to have the lights dimmed. Or it's the opposite. It's too dark, you're straining, you're falling asleep and it's displeasant and you might like it to be brighter. Or maybe there's a loud noise outside of your door and you find that displeasing you're having a negative displeasing reaction to what you're hearing or maybe you've put on a nice you know chanting in the background and it's very pleasing you find it very pleasing same thing with smell same thing with the taste in the mouth or the if you are in the act of eating you may like what you're eating it's so sweet and so yummy or it might be quote disgusting all of that so pleasant displeasant tastes um, pleasant displeasant feelings of the body if you're meditating you may be sore parts of the body may ache that's displeasant or you may get into a very nice, peaceful, tranquil state, and then that would be a pleasant body feeling. And then the sixth sensory organ is the mind, the very thoughts that we're having. And sometimes the thoughts we have are delightful, and sometimes the thoughts we have are dreadful. The second aspect of mindfulness, the second foundation of mindfulness described by the Buddha, is about that same sati it's about that same awareness focused attention and awareness but rather than the entire body and rather than this the sort of the feeling of being embodied or the sense of inhaling and exhaling you can kind of imagine it sort of like the the the, the focus is getting a little more fine-tuned and so we are just going deeper into the embodied experience and starting to notice the kind of uh, qualitative, the qualitative experience of being embodied. 
from the aspect of the six sensory organs and again noticing whether we find all of these are we having a pleasant or a displeasant experience but in these six different ways and so again the idea of this practice is to stay very focused and very aware of those vedana the different sensory reactions of the body and we're doing that again to sink even deeper into a, a focused awareness not distracted by things outside not distracted by things inside but actually very attentive very focused on our own experience in that way and so similar to that by the way so that ability or that practice of focusing on the body and then beginning to notice the qualitative difference of sensory experience the third step on this journey the third foundation of mindfulness described by the buddha is what is called the mind or mind states chitta so a chitta is a mind state and it's any it's whatever mind state you find yourself in at any given moment and that mind state would be you know the buddha describes these mind states as maybe being an, in an angry mind state being in a desirous mind state a confused mind state contracted mind state all of these different mind states but the idea here is is that the mind state is is total and what i mean by that is is that it's the the total state that you're in right now which may include you know thinking that you're you and thinking that these things are happening to you as well as noticing that the mind is angry and all of these things so mind or chitta in buddhism is it's rather complicated in that sense but what the third foundation of mindfulness is really about is about that same the same focused uninterrupted awareness but now of the mind itself of the state of mind that we're in and you know a good example of this that i like to use often it's it's simple but it's actually really helpful because i feel like it's one of those things that we've all experienced at one point or another and that's the the state of being angry or irritable because we're hungry you know we have this term hangry nowadays for that that very uh act or that very state of being angry or irritated but because we are hungry and the idea of that the is is actually very related to these foundations of mindfulness the idea is is that we are having a certain bodily experience which is this experience of say not having eaten and and being hungry the body letting us know hey you should eat something so that's sort of the bodily awareness that the stomach is empty in that sense and then there is the vedana which is the negative reaction to that state of being hungry it again it's it's not pleasant in for in, in the state that we're talking about and so what happens is is that from that there generates a negative state of mind what the buddha would call maybe an angry uh chitta an anger filled state of mind 
And this happens to us where we actually get angry or we get irritable, we get cranky. We, we might even actually yell at people and do rash things and do all kinds of things in an angry state of mind. And the practice here is, well, it's sort of twofold. The first is that when we are established in mindfulness on chitta, on the mind state, the first thing is we're still doing that same thing where we're trying not to get distracted. We're trying to stay focused and so staying with the state of mind. And again, I can't repeat this enough, it is a passive observation of the state of mind. It is not actively trying to change it. This is not a uh, meta loving kindness meditation when we're actually trying to change an angry mind state. Actually, at this point, we are really just interested in observing the mind state, staying with it, in, a, in effect, using it as a focused, uh, an object of awareness in that sense. So we're establishing an uninterrupted, non-distracted mind state, or focus, I should say, on our mind state. But then the other aspect of this practice is when we are not mindful, when we're not meditative, when we're not doing the practice, we can very easily not recognize that it's the hunger that's producing the mind state. It's very easy when we are in an angry mind state to blame other people. And so maybe you've gotten into an argument because you were hangry, because you were angry because you were hungry, but you didn't recognize that it was because of hunger. And so you've gotten into an argument with somebody and it would be very easy to blame that person, to blame a scenario and really to start continue spinning out of control in, in terms of anger. So that's not being mindful. That's not being meditative. And it's not being aware of what's going on. It's not being aware of what's causing the mind state. But through this practice of noticing the body first, then coming to an awareness of sensations, and then being aware that the particular state of mind one is in at any given moment is the culmination. It's the result of all of those vedana coming to us from the body. So first foundation is the body, then the reactions or sensations, and then the very mind state that those reactions are producing. That's what's key. So that then in that more clear, calm, focused state of mind, the relationship between the hunger and the anger will be much, much more clear. And at that point, of course, the solution to ending the anger problem, which is getting a snack or getting something to eat, it becomes even clearer that that's what we need to do. So that is the third foundation of mindfulness or sati, that is focused attention of the mind itself, a mind state, the particular mind state one finds oneself in. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness listed by the Buddha in the little sutra I just read is dharmas. So you may be familiar, of course, with 
the complexities of the term dharma in Buddhism, that it has many different meanings. It can mean the truth. It can mean the law, principles. It can refer to the teachings of the Buddha. It can refer to uh, uh, what are called mind objects or the sensory objects of the mind. Those are also called dharmas. So there's a broad uh, meaning to this term. Fortunately, in other suttas and other sutras, the Buddha is much more clear about what he means by uh, mindful awareness of dharmas, so the sati of dharmas. And the basic idea is that we are interested in focused, aware attention of the teachings of the Buddha. So in this case, the dharmas that we are to be aware of, that we are to be focused, concentrated on, are these essential teachings of the Buddha, such as the Four Noble Truths, the Five Hindrances, the Six uh, Senses, or the Six uh, Consciousnesses, actually, Seven Factors of Enlightenment, the Eightfold Path itself, all of these different dharmas, all of these different teachings of the Buddha, those are the fourth foundation of mindfulness. But I want to, you know, clarify what, you know, what's going on here. I think the idea here is, is not, you know, in this process of sati or mindfulness, we're actually going for less and less and less mental activity more and more peace and tranquility, less and less mental activity. And, and what I mean by that is, is that when we begin this process, you can imagine the mind very distracted, very divided, really jumping from not just one idea to the next, but actually juggling many ideas at once. So, you know, really overactive in terms of what we're thinking about, but then all of the emotions involved in what we're thinking about, then all the planning and all the calculating, you know, just there's a, a lot, a lot of mental activity that could be going on. And so this process of kind of reining in that attention and beginning just with focusing on the body, in particular, just the breathing, the point of that is actually minimize the amount of things on our mind. And so that actually when we move to the sensations of the body, it's supposed to be even less on our mind in that way. And then when we get to just the mind state itself, that in a way should even be less on our mind. The point being that when we arrive at the fourth foundation of mindfulness and our mind is simply resting on the noble truth of suffering, for example, so not even the four noble truths as a whole, but just the first, first noble truth, suffering, dukkha, this is dukkha. When one is doing sati or mindfulness of dharmas, and in this case doing mindfulness of the first noble truth, the goal here is not exactly to be thinking about the first noble truth. It's not actually necessarily about thinking about suffering. It's actually about using that teaching, using that Dharma as an even more subtle 
refined object of focus. And in a sense, if you've sort of done this, um, I don't want to say right or correctly, because there's a lot of different ways to actually do this. But the idea here is, is that if you've gone through the body and then the sensations and then the states of mind, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the idea is, is it should really, really just be one thing on one's mind. Just this really clear, concentrated focus on, say, the idea of suffering, the idea of attachment or desire. The idea of the cessation of suffering by not being desirous in that way. It could be any one of the dharmas, one, any number of the teachings of the Buddha. <clears throat> but the idea would be that in this focused state, having gone from the body to sensations to the chitta, the mind state, one is now able to really, really focus on this idea, undistracted, mindful, clear, as the Buddha says, ardent, focused, clearly aware. And yes, having a much more clear, ardent, focused awareness of the dharmas will bring about a clearer understanding of the dharmas. That is definitely what this is about. But my point is, is that in this process of mindfulness, it's about using a dharma or using a teaching as a even more subtle anchor of attention and that we are just staying with that idea and that in a way almost through a form of osmosis the knowledge of that teaching will penetrate but it will penetrate through this very still calm focused attention okay so that's a quick uh, breakdown of that. I did want to uh, mention just one more thing from the little bit I read. So when the Buddha says, and what bhikkhus is right mindfulness, here bhikkhus, a bhikkhu dwells contemplating the body, ardent, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed covetousness and displeasure in regard to the world. So, that's sort of a key phrase. We'll see it come up again in a moment. But a key aspect of right mindfulness, a key aspect to it is this idea of letting go of covetousness or this kind of deep desire for the things of the world, but also letting go, or what's the verb? Having removed covetousness and displeasure for the world. So displeasure for the world is, is important because within the world of Buddhism, they focus, we, they focus a lot on craving, desire, wanting, lust, the, that type of thing of the wanting more of being really delighted by the world and wanting more of the world and, and really feeling like that, that you will be Again, not safe or not happy without the things of the world. So Buddhism focuses a lot on that, but it also focuses on the opposite of that. And the opposite of that is displeasure with the world. This really negative state of mind in which the world is terrible, everything in the world is terrible. It's kind of um, 
you know, a, a depressive mode in that sense where one is really down on the things of this world. Don't, I don't want to have anything to do with the, this world. And in that sense, you can imagine a kind of desire to escape the world because you have such a negative feeling about everything going on in this world. You sort of, oh, oh, uh, uh, deep, deep meditation. Yeah, let's go. I want out of here. And it's, so it's very important to notice that the Buddha, excuse me, that the Buddha puts right mindfulness as a state of ardent, clear awareness that has neither desire for the world nor displeasure dis with the world or, you know, isn't into the world. This is that, you know, the classic middle path as the Buddha describes his teachings. It's a middle path between many things. And in this case, it's a middle path between sort of, you know, again, really being delighted by the things of this world and really wanting to be involved in it. And it's a middle path between that and then actually really being down on this world and being wanting to be removed from it. And so in this state, one is striking a, a, a middle path between those two. So that was that's a really clear part of the practice of mindfulness, in particular, the practice of right mindfulness. Okay, um, so just two last sutras to address, and I'm not going to read these sutras in total, um, but of course, I do want to bring your attention, if you're not familiar, familiar with it, there is what is called the Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness. This is the 10th Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses of the Buddha. And this is really the go-to sutta, the go-to Buddhist text for understanding sati, for understanding, you know, Buddhist meditation. And it's in this where the Buddha uh, says to the bhikkhus, right, that um, he says, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, and for the realization of nirvana. And what are, what is it? Namely, the four foundations of mindfulness. And what are the four? Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, one abides contemplating sensations, ardent, fully aware. One abides contemplating mind, ardent, fully aware. And one abides contemplating mind objects or dharmas as mind objects, fully aware, ardent, mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. So you get the same list of the four basic aspects of mindfulness. But what this sutra does then is then expands upon each of those four foundations, giving you more information or more aspects of the body. So that's where we find out about beginning with anapana or breathing, inhalation and exhalation. And then you could bring your awareness to the four postures. So if you're standing, sitting, walking or lying down, and then there are many other aspects of the body that one can use as focused attention. Bodily organs, um, the body in a state of impermanence or a state of decay. And then ultimately, one is going for 
a kind of awareness of the body simply in terms of the four great elements. So just simply in terms of earth, water, fire, and air, which is to say examining the body strictly in terms of its solid or in terms of solidity, in terms of liquidity, in terms of temperature, and in terms of movement. So really stripping all the aspects of the body, stripping them of their kind of social context, stripping of their of their larger context, and just analyzing the body at this very elemental level. Um, the Buddha also has in this sutta uh, further recommendations for contemplating Vedana, uh, further information for contemplating citta or mind states, and then the last part, contemplating or being mindful of dharmas, the Buddha has, or the sutra has, a list of dharmas, starting with the hindrances, the five hindrances, the five aggregates, the six sense bases, the seven factors of enlightenment, and finally the four noble truths. So that is a great reference if you want further, more information on the practice of sati or mindfulness, and in particular, the four foundations of mindfulness. And if you're really into this, I just want to remind you that in the Diga Nikaya, in the long discourses of the Buddha, we find the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, which is the great discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. This is Sutta number 22 in the Diga Nikaya. And it reads more or less like the one from the middle-length discourses from the Majjhima Nikaya. The Buddha just has in this one, since it's a Maha version, a larger version, there is just a little more information, particularly on the, the fourth foundation, particularly on dharmas. And this version of the sutra goes into much greater detail about the particular aspects of those dharmas. So not just listing you know, the six sense bases, but going through the eye, eye consciousness, eye media, and all of the different aspects of the eye, all of the diff aspects of the ear, and so on. So it's just a much more fine, um, uh, a finer look at these four foundations of mindfulness. But that is the practice. And so I think that will conclude this seventh entry on the path of right mindfulness, otherwise known as samasati or samyakshmurti. Um, thank you and be well. <laughs>